Welcome to the Equine Veterinary Journal Podcasts, In Conversation. Hi, and welcome to the December edition of the EVJ Podcast. I'm your host, Rhiannon Morgan. Today we have a bumper episode on equine influenza, as I'm joined by Richard Newton, Director of Epidemiology and Disease Surveillance at the University of Cambridge. Richard has written and co-authored two editorials, which can be found in the early view section of the EVJ website. One titled, Equine Influenza Vaccination Catches an Autumn Cold, but must get over it as soon as it can. This reviews the recent equine influenza outbreaks in the UK, explaining how and why they came about and why changes to vaccination schedules were implemented. The second editorial titled, Equine Influenza Biannual Boosters, What Does the Evidence Tell Us? This delves deeper into the science behind the changes to the equine influenza vaccination schedules, discussing the evidence of experimental, epidemiological and mathematical modelling studies. I would urge everyone to have a read of both as they explain the current climate of equine influenza in an easy and understandable format. Richard, thank you very much for joining us on the EVJ podcast today. Would you mind giving us an overview of equine influenza, um, of the two-phase epidemic which occurred in 2019, in February and then again in the summer months? Yeah, well, thank you for the opportunity to talk about this and uh, the papers that we've been writing, the editorials we've been writing uh, recently. Um, And you're right, it does stem back to 2019. Um, just to put that in context, 2018 had been a pretty quiet year. We'd only diagnosed um, equine influenza in the UK on two occasions. Um, so we really hadn't seen very much disease at all. And, and what was quite striking was that by the end of the first week in 2019, we'd already exceeded that total. Um, and we saw uh, a few more positive diagnoses of flu through January. And I... Uh, attended a BHA veterinary, that's British Horse Racing um, Authority, veterinary committee and warned them that we were seeing this apparent increase in influenza early in in 2019 um, and that we'd also had reports from colleagues in France that they had been diagnosing it as well. And obviously at that point in the outbreak, you don't know where it's going to go. But the BHA took this on and they made the recommendation to racehorse trainers at the time that any horses in training that had not been vaccinated within the preceding six months, it would be sensible to to vaccinate them. It wasn't a firm requirement, but it was just a recommendation because of the increased activity. Anyway, things got really interesting around the sort of first week in February, um, and I had occasion to contact the Director of Equine Health and Welfare at the BHA because we had diagnosed uh, influenza in a, um, a group of horses in training up in Cheshire. We're also becoming aware that some thoroughbreds in pre-training around Newmarket were also confirmed with disease. And so it did look like potentially thoroughbreds were um, infected and and, and we just didn't know what the the extent of the problem was and whether or not the racing network, which is obviously quite intense and we were building up to the um, festivals at Cheltenham and then subsequently at Aintree, quite what, what that was. So um, the veterinary committee met and made actually what was quite a monumental but difficult decision um, early in February that racing would be cancelled for a short period of time in order that the industry could take 
take stock. And in the end, it closed down for six days. In that time, a lot of swabs were taken through tracing animals that had been at various race courses where animals from the infected yard had been, because we didn't know whether or not they, they would be infected and then taking it back to their yards. And a fairly intensive amount of testing was done by the Animal Health Trust at that, at that time. And thankfully, we didn't find much evidence of, there was little bits of infection, but we didn't find much infection that suggested that the racing network was propagating this infection. In the meantime, though, we were picking up more diagnoses in different parts of the countries, but not in not in thoroughbred race uh, racehorses. So it was clear that what we'd seen very early in January was continuing, and we saw that sort of first peak, maybe uh, propagated or, or 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 helped by the promotion that with you know racing closing that that was you know that was headline news that had not happened in at least due to equine influenza in almost 40 years. Um, and so the promotion around that, I think, probably did lead to um, people being more aware about this infection and disease, and we were making more diagnoses. So that was really the first clear evidence we had of a major outbreak going on, uh, affecting multiple types of horses in multiple counties across across the country. And that's when we saw, as I say, quite a, a geographically quite a widespread uh, amount of disease. And then often, as happens with these things, you you step things up, you get more sound, you test them, um, and then it starts to sort of die down a little bit, and, and you see a decline in the number of diagnoses being made. And that happened really after that sort of February peak through into uh, April. Um, but then we started to see it pick up in, in May. And I don't think we had many weeks in that intervening period where we weren't at some point somewhere in the UK diagnosing uh, outbreaks of, of, of equine uh, influenza. Anyway, um, as we perhaps thought might happen, and as I say, racing had made the decision, they carried on, those festivals went ahead without incident, and, and we weren't making diagnoses in, in racehorse. But what we were doing was seeing lots of diagnoses being made in animals that then started to attend the summer events, the spring and summer events that, that, that we associate with, with this country. Um, and the majority of those do not insist on vaccination as part of the entry. Some had resisted the advice that we'd given back in February and they, they went ahead. And we saw really a peak in, in, in um, June and July. And then as that second wave, which was larger than, than the first, started to decline, um, then we were hearing about some events being cancelled. The, the sporting events were, um, you know, under the spotlight as well. And we were recommending that, you know, people really did think about biosecurity and, and, and vaccination. And we continued to make diagnoses all the way through pretty much to the end of August. And then it started to decline and um, went, went back really to its sort of baseline level where, you know, most weeks we wouldn't be picking up flu, but... Um, we did we did see it on a few occasions right up to the end of the year. So, yeah, 2019 was pretty dramatic. Uh, two waves uh, that were associated with some geographical expansions. Racing in the first one was obviously under the spotlight, and then it moved on to non-racing events and, and and things like that in the um, in in the sort of summer months. So, yeah, 2019 was was pretty pretty dramatic.
yeah so it sounds like a fairly busy year um making some quite big decisions in the context of stopping the racing calendar do you have um a disease surveillance group with predetermined action plans for these epidemics um well, we do. The, the, the group that I head up, Equine Infectious Disease Surveillance, now based at uh, the University of Cambridge. Back then, we were at the Animal Health Trust. Uh, and we work very closely. We are, in fact, funded by the thoroughbred racing breeding industry here in the UK. And I sit on various committees, veterinary committees. And I my, my job really is to warn them. We horizon scan internationally for the occurrence of disease and how those patterns are changing. So are we seeing patterns that we should be concerned about? We get consulted by other countries as to what is going on. In fact, just last week, I was consulted by Hong Kong, who picked up on the flu activity going on in the UK at the moment. So we are part of a sort of international collaboration on that. Um, I wouldn't say we have absolutely set plans as to, you know, what would trigger racing to stop. We Sometimes you have to be a little bit fluid and a little bit flexible and go with what, what you're seeing. But it's true that back in 2019, that was quite a, an unusual and monumental decision. But there we, we didn't have a crystal ball. We didn't know what was going to happen. And we were aware from previous, um, previous sort of studies or previous observations on the nature of the, the racing population is that it is highly connected. There's racing virtually every day, multiple race uh, courses, actors um sort of nodes within a network horses go in they move back so the potential for flu to spread and it's fair to say that even before 2019 but even more so now flu is the number one uh, disease of con- concern for something like 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 racing and we we were involved a little bit in the big outbreak that occurred in Australia back in 2007. And the difference there was they had kept flu out. They didn't rely on vaccination. So when it got in, it did cause a major problem and it spread very, very quickly. And they had to be quite drastic in how they controlled it. Um, And so, you know, you're, you're always learning lessons. And I think we've learned lessons from 2019 as well. And the one thing I would just say is we're we're well blessed now with a good network of laboratories applying very rapid diagnostics. And that is the key to being able to do what we did in 2019 in that, you know, you're not waiting for a few days for answers to have these horses got the infection. You can know that within a matter of hours and then make critical decisions on on, on the back of it. And that's really how modern diagnostics has made that decision making much, uh, much easier. Yeah, that sounds fantastic and absolutely necessary. So um, subsequent to the two-phase outbreak in 2019, what changes were made to your vaccination schedules or the vaccination schedules um, suggested? Yeah, again, just maybe to look backwards a a little bit first. Um, Many of the vets uh, working today probably wouldn't necessarily be aware of the history of why racehorses and sports horses are vaccinated and that that really goes back to um the late 1970s um again uh, important outbreaks of influenza that brought racing to a halt affected other events as well and there was no mandatory vaccination at, at that point there was an inquiry held and it was concluded based on the science that if 
if horse racing had employed mandatory vaccination, so i.e. every horse going onto a race course has to be on a vaccine schedule, then they concluded that the extent of that, that outbreak and the damage caused to, to the industry it affected Royal Ascot that year uh, would have been, would have been uh, limited. So in 1981, they brought in mandatory vaccination for racehorses across the three countries of uh, Great Britain, Ireland and France, so some of the tripartite countries. And there's a lot of exchange of animals, um, you know, between those racing ju- jurisdictions, of course. And it, it, it did a great job um, and, until, you know, 20, 2019. Um, those rules were looked at. We were already in the process, actually. There'd been a lot of discussion that actually the jockey club rules, as they would, you know, colloquially known, were a little bit out of kilter with what the data sheets were. So we tried to bring those in line, make them a bit more understandable um, and, and fit for purpose. And one we hadn't really thought about was shortening the 12-month annual booster down to six months. And I guess that was the big decision that came out of 2019, was that actually if we applied more frequent vaccination, then we would um, probably have a better protected population. And and, and that really was the the big decision. It's taken time for racing and the other sporting bodies to bring that in. It's got to go go through consultation. People have to approve it. And then, so it's really starting to come on on, on stream uh, now, I guess. And unfortunately, we've had the complication of a vaccine shortage very recently that's meant we've, we've had to look at that temporarily. But... That was the that was the the main outcome that came, and we've quite rightly had to scientifically justify that. And again, that's something that we've, you know, through through the second editorial, we've 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 tried to put a um, you know put the science behind the, the the decision of why six monthly boosters are in in fact better for protecting populations of horses, particularly if they're moving around, mixing, dispersing, going back to their home premises. So whilst we're talking about the biannual vaccination, could we delve a little bit more into the science behind the influenza vaccination? Maybe think about how individuals and herds react to it. Yeah, sure. Um, so, yeah, equine influenza vaccination has has been available really since the sort of mid to late 1960s and followed the, the first recognition of the, the flu that we're currently dealing with, the so-called H3N8. Uh, and it was recognised based on work in other species that actually you could vaccinate and, and protect animals uh, against this infection. And... Um, Essentially, our knowledge of that has has not moved forward a great deal because actually it's a very simple concept. Equine influenza, like other influenza viruses, um, if you can stimulate antibodies against the outer proteins of the virus, you can protect um, animals very effectively against getting infected and therefore developing clinical signs, shedding virus and infecting other animals. So we know that by using these vaccines appropriately, we can stimulate individual horse immunity. And if you do that across a sufficient proportion of the population, you can also act to really protect that whole population. So even animals that may not have responded particularly well or may, for whatever reason, not be suitable for vaccination. And that's the concept of herd uh, immunity. So by getting on vaccinating much of the population, you can actually protect uh, the whole population against against vaccination. 
the problem, though, is that the ideal vaccine doesn't exist for any species for any infection. And that ideal vaccination would be you, you give very few doses, you stimulate very high immunity, and that lasts the entire life of, of the animal. Um, and therefore, you only have to do it on one or two occasions. That doesn't happen with equine flu. And that's because the antibodies that are produced uh, against the virus um, decay over time. But they can also be slightly outdated if the virus that's um, causing the infection has moved on. Flu viruses naturally evolve. They go through this process of antigenic drift, and that's part of the way that they evade the immune system of the animal. So we're constantly having to look at how the vaccine, uh, how the virus, my apologies, causing the infection in the field is evolving and changing over time. And periodically, we have to update those, those vaccines. And so what we do rely on is boosting that immunity, so so-called boosters. And the long and short of it is that if we opt to do that, say, every six months rather than annually each year, then actually the overall level of immunity in those individual horses goes up and the amount of population immunity also goes up and therefore you confer even better herd immunity. And it's very unlikely in those situations that you're going to get large epidemics uh, propagating infections going through populations. But our big problem both here and elsewhere in the world is that not a large enough proportion of the population um, are vaccinated. And this infection will find gaps in the immunity. And therefore, if it finds a niche such as animals going to a gathering um, that aren't vaccinated, then it will take advantage of that. It will infect many animals. They will disperse and then start to infect other animals on, on, on affected premises. And that's really what we're trying to avoid. Um, because once you get that situation, you start to lose events, competitions, sport, sporting events, etc. And, and that's what we've seen historically. And that's what we're trying to avoid now. So in one of the editorials titled Equine Influenza Biannual Boosters, what does the evidence tell us? There are some interesting maps which depict how the 2003 outbreak in Newmarket occurred. How do close geographic areas and close contact personnel contribute to the spread of disease? Yeah, um, well, Newmarket is um, is a very interesting case in that we have a lot of horses uh, located in individual training yards, but actually they're geographically very close to each other, and that's advantageous when you've got excellent uh, facilities such as the uh, the Heath for you know training racehorses. But it's also very good for spreading in influenza, and there are several ways that that can happen. The close proximity of horses to each other just in those yards, it, you know, we, we, we think that, you know, several tens or even hundreds of metres separation should be sufficient. But I'm afraid with equine influenza, it's the one infection that will spread over relatively large distances as an airborne infection. The virus will survive in those conditions. Uh, the horse, because it's uh, essentially coughing, uh, will propel virus at high speed over a long distance. And that's why you can get transmission between yards. Added to that within Newmarket, we, the, the, you know, the trainers obviously have to move the horses around, around the town between the gallops from their part of wherever their hards, yards are located. And there are dedicated horse walks to do that safely, obviously. And that, we think, is the perfect time that you can, you can get 
you know, one coughing horse passing a string of other horses and you can get transmission that way. And so those are both essentially what we call direct transmission routes, so horse to horse. But we also know from other work um, and breakdowns in biosecurity in different parts of the world that you can get something called indirect transmission. That's where something can be contaminated and carry that infection uh, between infectious and susceptible animals. And in Newmarket, there are a lot of professionals moving between yards, so vets and farriers and other paraprofessionals. Um, and, and they, if their biosecurity is not optimal, they're not thinking about it, can, can happen. Um, and the map that you see in that editorial just marks out the yards that we that we definitely confirmed influenza in. We suspect the number was probably greater than, than, than it was. But what's striking there is that it's actually spread all over the town in most parts of the town. And I, and I've been in Newmarket since 1994, we'd not seen that. We'd seen occasional little pockets or the odd yard, but to see it so widespread across the town, um, probably with gaps where influenza had been, but we hadn't detected it, then that gave a totally different uh, a different picture. Um, and we know from some work looking at questionnaires that the train is kindly filled in for us, that there are clearly connections between yards on vets and farriers and others moving between, um, between those yards. And when those professionals have direct hands-on contact with horses, then obviously that's, um, that's potentially significant as well. So do you think these factors also um, contributed to the 2019 outbreak? They, they will have done to some extent. Uh, it, when you're looking at something nationally rather than very locally, as we did in Newmarket in 2003, it can be very hard to to actually pinpoint that. Um, I think very often it, it's, it's actually the movement of the infected animals themselves that really triggers that. But I think locally within, within certain areas, there would have been some indirect transmission as well. Um, in 2019, we were very concerned that we may get a repeat of 2003. Um, and we did speak with, um, you know, local trainer representation and, and, and vets and others, uh, you know, those in charge of the gallops. And, and, and you know, we, there was an element at one, you know, we did just have to wait and see and, and see what happened. And thankfully, we didn't, we didn't see a repeat of that. But, you know, the trainers had heeded the advice to get their horses uh, revaccinated. And, and that, I think, was certainly a lesson from 2003, where actually with a, a town the size of Newmarket, the number of animals, if you get in early and revaccinate virtually everything, you just boost that herd immunity to a level where the infection can't can't take off. And I'm, I'm sure that was a contributing factor. And so vaccination really is the message. It, it's our it's our prevention and it's also part of our, our control once we have it. Yeah, well, I think after COVID-19, we're all super aware of that now, which is great. So you write in the editorials that things seem to settle down after the 2019 outbreaks. And we'd also weathered the COVID-19 pandemic, of course. Um, but then you were hit with the complication of an imminent suspension of the Boehringer Ingelheim Protec flu vaccines. So this must have come as quite an unwelcome surprise. How did you decide to tackle this? Yes. Um, after all our efforts in 2019 and, you know, de dealing with that, that outbreak and, and trying to understand how we could try and improve things going forward, getting the various uh, sporting and racist, racing jurisdictions to take on board the, 
the concept of more frequent vaccination being their friend and them adopting that in their their rules and, and you know really having to convince horse owners that that was a sensible thing to do when you're then told that one of only three vaccine types that we have available in this country and in fact two of those constitute the major market um uh, you know the, the the market and and one of them is sort of lagging lagging behind um when you lose one of those um it it, it does have a an almost an instant impact in in that people can't get hold of the vaccine and therefore you have to sort of think on on your feet and i was lucky enough to be approached by a group that was convened uh, by the british equine veterinary association working with the um uh, both the BHA and, and British Equestrian, um, that group was led by um, Celia Marr and, and myself and two Davids, Mountford and, and Rendell from, from Beaver. And we had to devise a plan essentially of how can we best use a limited amount of vaccine stock to really do two things, try and maintain as best protection of the population as we can whilst at the same time not uh, allowing large numbers of horses to lapse. And because those rules had been changed, therefore they would be rendered ineligible to compete. And when you break that rule or you breach that rule, then the rules also say you have to restart your vaccination programmes in order to you know, restart competition. So it was kind of a perfect storm. You take out one of the, <laughs> the legs of the table, it can fall over. And we had to come up with a way of trying to prop that up. Um, and really, it was a matter of what is the, the best way that we could actually make a limited amount of stock go for a period of time. Thankfully, Bowringer were only talking about a shortage lasting through a few months to the end of October 2022. Um, and therefore, you know, we had to decide what to do. And that's that's when we came up with the strategy that we did. Um, and unfortunately... After all that hard work with the messaging, the only thing we could really do was to risk assess um, what the population uh, was like and to make strategic decisions about how best to lengthen the period that animals could go without being booster vaccinated. And, and that was really done across the whole risk profile from the low, what we considered the lowest risk animals, so these would be older animals, well vaccinated, but at that stage not really mixing and, and moving around and therefore not deemed to be at threat of either catching or then spreading flu, all the way down through the various risk groups to the, the youngest animals uh, that would have the least amount of vaccination but were moving about the most and therefore at biggest risk. And so essentially we had to decide that each part of what we had at, at the time could be slightly shifted and each one of those would contribute something towards saving doses of vaccine being given and therefore we could if you like make best use of, of what was available and it's important to say that actually that that had to be adopted by vets accepted by horse owners most importantly the jurisdictions of racing and the other sporting bodies had to also accept it and really fast track those decisions in, into their modifying their rules. Um, and, and in that, I would include the FEI. They're an international organisation that oversee sports horse um, 
competitions all over the world and, and they came on board as well. So it was a real team effort to shift the goalposts at very late notice. And the challenge that we've now got is how do we get people, how do we get those goalposts back? <laughs> So you, you were telling us a little bit about how you were extending or altering these schedules, um, which I can imagine is quite difficult to um, translate to horse owners and vets as well. Could you talk us a little bit more through the proposed changes and the science behind them? Yeah, as, as, as I say, uh, Rihanna, it, Rihanna, it was um, it was done on a risk on a risk basis. Um, we we had to assess those risks and, and make decisions appropriately. And, and, and that, you know, you, you'll, you'll see the table in one of the editorials. That, that was put out to be the members and, and explained so that really vets on the ground can make those decisions. They were the ones working with their owners that had to make those decisions. Um, and so, as I say, for the lowest and, and low-risk animals, they would have been on annual boosters, and the difficult decision there, and, it, and it, this was the most difficult decision, was do we leave them annual boosters? And you're thinking about those animals are coming up for their annual boosters in this period where there is a shortage of vaccine. And some vets may not have any vaccine to be able to give. And that's why we relied on, on vets really being able to share vaccine and keep each other um, you know, equipped with it. So the difficult decision was do we extend, can we safely extend that 12 months out to a, a given period? And the decision was taken that extending that out to 15 months was not ideal, far from ideal, uh, but there was some science that was able to justify it. And, and one of the manufacturers many years ago had actually done some work to demonstrate that compared to non-vaccinated animals, some animals that were uh, booster vaccinated and then left to 15 months and then challenged with the, the flu virus were still better protected than if they had not had any vaccine. So there was some science to justify it. It wasn't ideal and it wasn't something we really wanted to to do, but we didn't have any choice, particularly as we felt that that group, in terms of the amount of saving of doses of vaccine, that would generate the most the most saving. That would mean that there would be enough to go go around elsewhere and, 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 and cover off the whole thing, given that it was a limited shortage for only a few months. Um, in terms of other vaccines, they wouldn't have gone through the same, um, you know, the same trial. That was, you know, a long time ago that vaccine went through that. But the, the principles and the concepts were exactly the same. And we know from monitoring horses that at 12 months after your last vaccine, your immunity doesn't just fall off a cliff it doesn't end abruptly it's you still have some there so we were reasonably confident that whatever vaccine they'd last had there would still be some protection there albeit not as good as if they'd been um, you know booster vaccinated at that point and that would have stimulated their immunity so so we would still have some protection in in, in that part of the population and similarly some animals that had been vaccinated at six month intervals in a way, they'd already built up some protection from doing that, and therefore they could be extended out back out to 12 months, the annual booster, as it had been previously. And we were reasonably confident that a few months there um, would be, you know, they, they, they would still be protected. And the other thing, those animals that were in the early part of their vaccine history, um, then extending them out to the upper limits of, of when you can go in and, and give the, 
second dose or the third dose of vaccine by slightly extending those a few weeks again we felt that, that was probably okay and that um uh, you, they, they would still remain with with you know valid vaccine histories that meant they wouldn't need to be restarted when vaccine supply came came back and we were very keen that young horses you know were not left unvaccinated the general recommendation is obviously to vaccinate mares before they foal that stimulates their maternal antibody in the colostrum that goes into the foals when they're very young and that transferred uh, immunity will protect them for for six months and then you can start vaccinating animals most safely when they're around six months or, or slightly older and therefore keeping mares vaccinated um, and and obviously foals when they get to a critical age was was also important and get them off to the best start that we could so that that was really the rationale depending how old animals were what their risk profile was um, and just trying to make best use of the limited stock that was available I know this only arose in August 2022 if that's correct um, have you seen how it's be, how it's been accepted by vets and owners and have you seen any effects of the supply shortage within the numbers of influenza so far yeah that, that that's very interesting um we sort of thought about this and we, we publicized it and obviously we've had the first editorial come out to try and explain what all that was um beaver did try and stay connected with its membership and, and did a couple of um quick surveys to find out how how the vaccine shortage was was, was hitting um i don't think we got a great deal of feedback which i think with hindsight we've got to take as a good thing that people weren't you know hitting too many problems um obviously we had the you know, we now have the corporatization of, of, of veterinary medicine, including equine practice. Um, I think in the end, that was probably a good thing in that it helped share out within within the corporates that, you know, they already have the structures for, um, you know, keeping practice connected, etc. Um, so, yeah, I have, we've taken it that no news has been, been good news. The other bit of good news was that um, the company involved, Boehringer Ingelheim, did work hard to identify um, supply of another vaccine coming in from the United States. The Veterinary Medicines Directorate did, did a, again, a very good job um, sort of fast-tracking that as best they could. And so part of the way through the shortage, um, that did come online through into wholesalers, through a, um, a wholesaler's um, import license, and then vets could apply again through a special import uh, certificate to, to to get hold of that. Um, again, some reports would say that didn't perhaps go as smoothly as it could have done, but you know it was novel and and um, and and has helped. And then we've since learned that only a, a week or so behind what what they were telling us that Protec flu is now back online and in, in the wholesalers. So, you know, largely it's followed the timeline that the company has told us and, and vets are no longer no longer short. And and we've not really heard that there were any major impacts from horses um, lapsing with their vaccinations. And at the time during the shortage, we weren't thankfully hearing about much flu in the country or, or elsewhere, although that has 
slightly changed, but doesn't look like it's been impacting any any animals that may have lapsed slightly with their vaccination. So have we done a full circle now? Are we back to adopting the biannual vaccination? Um, not not quite. Uh, that, that hopefully will be coming. Uh, the group that I sit on, uh, the British Equestrian um, Federation Equine Infectious Disease Advisory Group, um, is starting to meet about about that, how that can be brought back on. So I think there's still a bit of work to be done there, and not least to convince people to go back. The messages coming out of many of these groups are the great reluctance to do it. And unfortunately, <laughs> that's what can happen when... Uh, when when you move on with time from from major events like 2019, uh, people seem to uh, conveniently forget what they were in at the time and why they were doing it. And so we we just need to keep banging the drum that actually there is a good reason why six months is there. And part of it is that in terms of the landscape of the vaccines, nothing's changed in terms of updates of strains or anything like that. And yet the virus will have moved on slowly, slowly, um, and we'll be waiting to, to to strike again, if you if you like. And in fact, the last few weeks we have we have seen that, albeit in unvaccinated horses. So, you know, flu has not disappeared. The threat is still there. The vaccine landscape, as I say, hasn't changed. And one way we can really protect our horse populations um, is is to use the vaccines we've got and just do them slightly more frequently. Do you have a take-home message for us, Richard? That might have been it, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, I think I think I think it is. It, it's <laughs> when you're as old as I am, you you know you you do tend to look back quite a lot and think, you know, we've got to learn lessons from these things. Um, I think we, from looking knowing about other viruses as well as influenza in different species, the vaccine really is our our best friend in in terms of preventing it and controlling it and stopping it escalating getting out of control and you've only got to look at what's happened recently we had flu going through various sales and what basically happens is you gather unvaccinated horses together one or more of them introduces the infection they're together long enough for that to spread and then it disperses out and when you've got hundreds of animals going through in quite short order and then going to all four corners of the uk and then spreading it on to unvaccinated horses on those that's when you get a burden of disease and you you know there are welfare implications with that so it's relatively a small amount of money and if horse owners really are you know true to their word that the horse's welfare is key then please call your vet talk about vaccination and and let's do it well, Richard, thank you very much for a fascinating explanation of the history of equine influenza and the story behind the vaccine schedules and their changes. Um, we really appreciate your time on the podcast. Thank you, Rihanna. It's been a real pleasure speaking to you. Thank you. Thanks again for listening and please tune in for our February episode. Thank you for listening to this Equine Veterinary Channel podcast. More about the subjects discussed today can be found online at wileyonlinelibrary.com forward slash journal forward slash evj.